This is the Ned Group Investments Podcast, a space where you can learn more about our fund managers, the funds they manage, as well as getting up-to-date and important developments affecting the investment world and how they might be relevant to you. So Jeremy is the manager of the Ned Group Investments Global Behavioral Fund. He is a co-founder and portfolio manager at Adevra Asset Management. And the Ned Group Global Behavioral Fund is a portfolio of about 150 to 250 stocks. Now, what Adevra are trying to do is identify unusual things happening in global equity markets. And they try to identify the mistakes that various groups of investors, analysts, and management teams make and how to profit from those mistakes. So, Jeremy, welcome. And how are you doing? Pretty tippity top. How about you? Yeah, all good. Thank you. So, Jeremy, how about we kick off with an introduction to Adevra? So we're a privately owned uh, global equity blue, uh, boutique. Uh, we run about 8 billion sterling, which I think is 160 billion rand. And we do that for clients all over the world. As you say, I'm one of the three PMs. The three of us have worked together for almost 20 years. And I've worked with Bill, who's the co-founder of Ardevra for over 30 years. This experience and trust between us all is, is a super important and major asset, I think, of the, of, of the firm. We launched uh, an analyst program in 2016, so uh, it's not just the three fund managers. We've now got 13 researchers, including a responsible investment kind of specialist team. And yeah, you know, uh, from nothing over 10 years ago, um, we have about 50 people now and uh, sort of cautiously ambitious, just trying to do the same thing uh, reasonably well for, for, for more people, really. Thanks, Jeremy. So... As mentioned, you guys are very interested in psychology and why people make mistakes. I mean, of course, you are bottom-up stock pickers. Can you please tell us a bit more about your investment process? Yeah, as you say, uh, we're global, so we kind of go anywhere. And then we're bottom-up, which sort of means that we kind of start right in the kind of undergrowth of looking at very specific companies and then sort of see what emerges uh, from there. Because of where we start, you know, looking at businesses and, and, and the behavior of businesses, we kind of use the same information as, as everyone else. So we're not kind of different about that. But uh, I think because of the way we approach it from the sort of behavioral aspect, I think we ask sort of slightly different questions of that information. So uh, as you said, I think quite well, you know, our approach and focus is, is about the behavioral traits of people and the mistakes that they can make. And, and in particular, it's that psych- psychology of mistakes, I think, which particularly interests us. We're particularly interested in uh, the sort of CEO behavior, if you like, you know, the people that run the businesses. And that's generally when we, where we start when we think about an opportunity. Uh, we think CEOs are unusually untrustworthy. I think it's far too easy for them to set kind of overambitious plans for their business which can turn out to be unrealistic. And when you're on the wrong end of an unrealistic, overambitious CEO, in our experience, that's what makes a stock dangerous. That's kind of risk, if you like. We take a sort of slightly lateral approach to trying to work out whether a CEO is sort of safe, if you like, which is that we're less interested in the person because we're generally skeptical about them as a group. And so we're more interested in trying to work out the kinds of conditions which make it sort of unusually easy for him to behave well, for him to like strike realistic plans, uh, which where it's easier for them to sort of fulfill them. And then we like a kind of like a bit of an extra insurance policy, which is where we think about the business model and how the business is built. And so we want, we prefer business models, if you like, which are a bit more robust, you know, less likely to blow up quickly if those plans go wrong. So that, that kind of framework leads us to, basically sort of two sorts of opportunities, which gives us quite an eclectic portfolio. 
we kind of frame them in a slightly different language to other people, but I've learned that it's easy to lose people. So I kind of, we stuck a couple of what I think are sort of easier to understand markers on them. So we have a bunch of stocks, which to the outside world, I think look like kind of recovery value stocks. And these are kind of reasonable businesses with a kind of scar from having gone through some unusually difficult conditions, which is, if you like, pressurized the CEO to sort of do something he doesn't usually like, which is to sort of de-risk a business, focus on the kind of boring stuff of how to make a business better and where we can see signs that those plans are effective. But often there's quite a lot of trauma associated with the history of those stocks and quite a lot of skepticism by the market broadly. And so effectively what we're playing is that is that process of the rebuilding of trust in a business, which releases anxiety. So we've got the kind of group that are like that. And then the other kind of behavioral cycle we play are businesses which from the outside world look like look like growth businesses. And they have growth plans, you know, that if you like the CEOs want to want to grow the businesses. But for us, We've got to be convinced it's unusually easy for them to do that. So we're less interested in how fast they can grow. It's more, if you like, that path of how easy it is. So, you know, and if you deliver a successful growth plan, that's what builds investor trust and builds belief in the business. And it tends to drive the stock price up if you can keep doing that over a long period of time. And I think often the market can underappreciate the power of that, if you like, that longevity and consistency of being able to do that and how difficult that is. Thanks, Jeremy. That's actually quite a nice way of explaining what you do. So at the end of it, what do clients actually get and how does the, how does the fund actually behave? So as, as you said, we end up with a kind of portfolio which has got lots and lots of stocks, uh, and that's quite deliberate. It's quite an eclectic portfolio as well, but sort of you like lots of different things going in, if you like, right down in the undergrowth. And, and what we found is that like sort of cautious approach to having lots of small uh, positions in lots of different things gives us and being focused on the risk, if you like, gives us pretty good downside protection and also means our performance has been reasonably consistent. And also that kind of structure helps protect the fund, I think, from ourselves as well, because we talk about viewing markets as exploiting other people's mistakes. But we also know that we're far from perfect, shall I say. You know, I've been doing this long enough to know how surprisingly easy it is to get it wrong. And so that, again, that sort of approach of having lots of small positions, not getting overexcited about any particular theme or style or sector, and then focusing kind of on what can go wrong with CEO behavior, that all kind of tends to give you that, you know, reasonable downside protection, I think. But also we're quite sort of reactive. You know, we're pretty open-minded because we have those two quite different types of opportunities of, if you like, the kind of anxiety release value and then that maybe the more exciting growth. We like sort of just reacting to what's in front of us. So the, the mix of the portfolio can sort of shift around depending on what we're what we're doing. We do struggle in certain types of environments. I think it's partly because we're, we're innately cautious. So, you know, when, when other investors get kind of really excited about things and become especially risk loving, either like they're really hyped up about a recovery or they're really hyped up about a growth trend, then we can maybe struggle to keep up. But generally, our upside capture is pretty good as well. So you get, I think, uh, you know, a reasonably consistent farm, reasonable downside protection and, and normally pretty decent upside capture as well. Thanks, Jeremy. You mentioned about uh, some of those market environments which you tend to struggle. Let's have a look back at Q1, which is not, it hasn't been your best quarter, but it's also yep. an environment in which your style does tend to struggle a little bit. Let's talk about that. Yeah, that's right. So yeah, Q1 in many ways is a kind of quite a nice example of the sorts of conditions where we can struggle to keep up because, you know, it's, an, it's a question I often get is, you know, when do you think you're going to underperform? 
And uh, it's sort of to do with the sort of mix of the types of stocks that investors sort of get enthusiastic about. So it's partly the conditions, it's partly also, you know, us. We didn't quite get the mix of things right first quarter. You know, that, if you like, that mix of, you know, the recovery ones versus the growth ones. So if I start with that, that growth value mix, as I say, we're kind of very bottom up. We typically explain, you know, we hold those two different types. And our exposure to growth and value in the portfolios is driven very much by that, if you like, what we see when we're rootling around and picking stocks and how easy it is for us to find them. For a few years, it's been um, easier to find, I would say, businesses, or much easier to find businesses with credible growth plans. Really, I would guess since 2012, 13, so quite a long time for us. And it's been harder to find businesses with credible recovery plans. So what we found is that, you know, we've generally had, if you like, a bit of a growth bias in the portfolio. But during last year with the, the pandemic, the kind of environment sort of shifted, I think, quite a lot, which allowed a lot of CEOs to undertake some some quite radical restructuring plans. And uh, that sort of kind of created an environment, if you like, in some sense, sort of easier for those value type stocks to do well. And we recognize that, and that particularly helped us in Q4. But still, what, you know, what we've kind of seen in Q1 is that we haven't still quite got that mix right. And, it, and it's less about us not finding enough recovery stocks. I think it's more that we actually kind of hung on, I think, to a few too many of our growth stocks, where we still like the management behavior and the outlook. But we just, you know, if like it swamped a bit the the power of, the, of those recovery plans. And Q1 was really the first time since, if you like, this recovery really started to take hold. You know, if we think, you know, if you like, the the tide sort of turned on anxiety in sort of March of last year. Q1 is the first uh, time I think we've really seen this sort of sense of proper rotation, if you like, yeah, because last year kind of. A lot of our growth names did just as well as a lot of our recovery names. But Q1, there was that, that kind of, you know, they started to go in opposite directions. And that effect was exaggerated a bit by some of the sectors in the market, which we have a slightly more jaundiced kind of risk averse view to, like financials and energy. Uh, we don't have very many financials. We've tended to historically been a bit cautious on, uh, on banks in particular. Although if we have time, I, I can talk about uh, what we're doing there. But, but basically, we've, we're very light in financials and we're also a bit skeptical about energy because of the, it's like the environmental risks associated with them. So um, and those two sectors, like a lot of the recovery punch was in those two areas. So uh, not, I would say not quite in the right places was really the story of, of Q1. Thanks, Jeremy. I just wouldn't mind jumping a bit deeper into some of the positive and negative contributors. So just if we look at some of the positives, firstly, I see there's a lot of these recovering value type names. I mean, maybe you can give us an example of United Rentals, for example, just to talk a bit more through that. That's right. So, I mean, a lot of the names that did well for us in Q1 were, were things that we bought last year as we kind of grappled with this sort of shift in environment in Q2 of last year and recognized that, uh, you know, as we we're looking from the bottom up, there just seemed to be a lot more businesses which were if you like set for recovery in the sense that, you know, the CEOs that were running them were were unusually willing to adopt recovery restructuring plans, which kind of looked realistic and credible. And then, you know, and I had an unusual opportunity to sort of deliver them on on track. So we bunch of we bought a bunch of businesses that we felt were essentially pretty good businesses that had had a uh, a tough time for understandable reasons outside of their control, which then, if you like, they'd responded to that environment and now we're in a, a place to sort of rebuild back 
some of the lost ground that they'd had from the impact of the pandemic. But also we wanted things which had a bit of legs to them as well. So it wasn't that they could carry that recovery forward. And so there were a few areas, I think, which which jumped up, up at us. We got particularly interested in businesses tied to the construction cycle. Uh, for reasons, again, I'll come on to in a moment. But construction is a kind of slightly tricky business. There, there, there are quite a few ways of being involved in construction where the business models are not that great. You know, if you make a mistake, it can it can cause you problems. If you're a building contractor, for example, if you miss on a project, it's a bit tough. But there are a few businesses which, if you like, they benefit when there's a recovery going on in that area, but their business models are just a bit safer and more robust. And United Rentals is a kind of good example of that. What it does sounds quite simple, because it kind of is in one sense, is it just rents out and maintains really big bits of kit, basically bits of machinery that you can move around, like diggers and uh, bulldozers and things like that, and all the kind of tools that go with that, which are mainly used in construction. But the reason why it's kind of a bit of an unusual business is partly kind of the landscape that it operates in. That industry kind of started with lots and lots of small kind of localized players. You just had a bunch of kit and they kind of rented it out. And they benefited from construction companies just wanting to uh, reduce the amount of money tied up in the kit while it was sitting idle. But as that sort of acceptance of not having to own your own kit became more prevalent, two big kind of national players emerged in the US. And in fact, we bought both of them. One's United Rentals, the other one's Ashtead. And they now make up about 30% of that market. Now, they've been able, kind of as they've got bigger, you know, they're now they what they do is instead of it just being like a bit of kit, they kind of manage fleets of kit and the, how you maintain them and how you manage them and the services you add on to them just makes that kind of more interesting and lower risk business. Whilst at the same time, they can still kind of grow by just picking off the, the smaller players that are still out there that can't do the sorts of things that they do. So that that's why the kind of business model kind of makes sense. And then within that, the guys that run those two businesses have, uh, have shown in the good times that they've been, they've been to quite a few quite a few booms and busts. So they've honed, if you like, the way they run those businesses. So you can see in the good times that they're, they're still quite careful about the way they try and grow. And you can see that pattern before the pandemic hit. So that, that's the kind of why the CEO behavior kind of makes sense. But then why they're interesting as well in this context is that our sense is that, you know, construction, like everything, got kind of hammered in the pandemic. But when we look at the path of recovery out of this pandemic, it looks to us like it's going to be more of a like a construction heavy kind of recovery, which is very different to the last big crisis we had in 2008-9, where a lot of the problems were kind of tied to construction. So, so construction is very slow to come out of that one. This time it looks a bit different because each cycle is a bit different. And it's partly to do with the way we're coming out of this cycle, where a lot of government stimulus kind of directed at a lot of kind of construction heavy industries. So that just makes it easier, I think, for you to then deliver your recovery plan with all that sort of help. So, yeah, so it's, I think that was quite a nice example of a, of a lot of businesses which kind of look similar and, and which have uh, helped us not get left too far behind in this quarter. Thanks, Jeremy. Let's turn to some of the negative contributors now. I think, interestingly, I actually wanted to ask you about Trade Desk. It's a bit of a reversal from last quarter. I remember we chatted about that. It was actually a contributor, positively, last quarter. Yeah, that's right. Swings and roundabouts, isn't it, of, uh, of investment. That's the beauty and the, uh, the trauma of having lots and lots and lots of positions is that, uh, yeah, you can always find one in the quarter which makes you look good but you can always find another one which makes you look pretty stupid. The interesting thing I think about Trade Desk, and I'll just remind you of kind of what it does, 
because it remains actually a super interesting business. It's an online advertising platform, essentially. They, they basically kind of automate what uh, old-fashioned sort of media bars, which are sort of blokes on telephones, uh, used to do for ad agencies, which is, you know, find out what ads are out there in all the various different places, negotiate prices for them, and then place the ads, if you like. But they've been able to sort of automate that by kind of using software. But also what they've done is they've been able to make it much easier to see the effectiveness of those adverts as well, particularly the ones that sort of sit outside the Facebook and Google Google ad systems. It's it's like a super good business model. And they've, and they've been super effective at exploiting that business model to drive a lot of growth. And um, we think analysts have, have continue to kind of struggle with how good a business that is and how long it can grow for. But the thing is, that doesn't kind of matter at the moment. And this comes back, I suppose, to that that mix thing and uh, the kind of headline of this talk, which is, you know, kind of is growth scarce anymore? And what they've suffered from is what, if you like, we as a, at an aggregate level suffered from in, in Q1, which is that um, there are just a lot, a lot more viable if you like, uh, plans for delivering growth out there, which are not just growth companies, they're recovery companies as well. So last year, what they did and their ability to grow through a, a deep macro shock, that looked really unusual. And so like investors kind of flocked to that because you got, if you like, really safe looking growth. But now as we survey this year, it's like you've got a lot more choice. And so they're a great example of that rotation that I was talking about this quarter, where more investors have gone, yeah, that's kind of great, but oh, I can have one of those over there. And so, um, so they've not done so well. And uh, even though we like them, it might sound a kind of bit paradoxical, we have also sold them uh, because even though they've not done that well this quarter, they've done really, really well over the last year and the last three years and the last five years. And so they are still generally, still generally kind of quite loved. And so uh, as part of our trying to get the mix right, we uh, forced ourselves to sell a bunch of stocks, uh, which have got the characteristics like trade desk, uh, which have done particularly well. Even if they hadn't done well this quarter, we forced ourselves to sell them to get that mix more even in terms of recovery and growth from there. Thanks, Jeremy. I guess just the last question from me, I wouldn't mind just hearing your thoughts about the rest of the year. What are you expecting? So, you know, when we when we started this year, we did a lot of kind of number crunching on on vaccine rollouts and, and stress in the healthcare system and what's the path to reopening. And it seemed to us that this was going to be a tricky year that, you know, even though we had vaccines, that the ability for countries to, to vaccinate enough people quickly enough to allow us to get back to doing what a lot of us want to do, go to the pub go on holiday, all those sorts of things, we're still going to be quite limited. So we were a bit nervous, I would say, at the start of this year about how how easy that path to recovery could be through this year. But I think what we've, what we've worked out is that it's coming, basically. This year is still a year of recovery. It's not going to be smooth. The path of reopening is going to be a bit bumpy, but the direction of travel is still very, very clearly set, I think. But it's probably, if you like, going to consume all of this year, that, that sense of the traveling towards the recovery. And in stock markets, that's quite important because I think that's what tends to drive stocks is if like the traveling towards a point rather than the, oh, we're now arrived. And so that's why we still basically see it as a year of recovery, a year of unwinding of anxiety, and also generally a year of surprise that actually 
business's ability to, to ride that recovery and having adapted and so on will surprise people. And there could be quite a lot of surprising operational leverage to the recovery as well. So our view is still, you know, you need to keep, you need to keep your exposure in that recovery camp, even though there's still plenty of interesting secular growth themes as well. Thanks, Jeremy. We'll take one question from the audience today. It's just about FANG stocks and a secular rotation into cyclicals potentially. What do you think about that? Uh, I wouldn't say it's secular. Uh, so all our experience of recovery. So if you think about, so if value works, I think, because you're playing essentially recovery. You're playing the ability of a business to regain what it has lost, if you like. Cheap companies are ones which have experienced bad things, gone down, suffered, and then they work if a CEO then has a realistic plan to then return it back, if you like, in some sense to its former glory. Now, by their nature, recovery plans are finite. Once you've recovered what you've lost, if you can, then the kind of story is over. And so it's quite difficult to have a secular shift to recovery unless you can basically keep refueling those recovery stories. Uh, And that's been the issue, uh, if you like, from 2011, 12 kind of onwards is you, you last time you had an opportunity to play value cyclical recovery was in that 2008-9 traumatic period. But by after a couple of years, it's kind of over. And uh, that's sort of where we are here as well. There's some recovery to be played, but 2022 is going to look quite different. And for you to want to believe in secular shifts, you have to believe that there's if you like, there's more in the tank for 2022 as you look into 2023. That's one half of the argument. The other half of the argument, which has historically helped value to do well for a long period of time, is less to do with their ability to do well. It's more to do with the ability of the growth stocks to do badly. And so uh, if you like, it's, it's uh, avoiding the losers kind of game. And so that's the other debate. It's like the fangs. Uh, do you think their growth is gone? if you like, because that's what can kill a growth stock, is it matures, it runs out of that growth runway. Unfortunately for those believers in value, I don't see a lot of signs yet that that those growth engines, those secular growth trends of disruption, digitalization, reconfiguring of the economy and the way it kind of works, I don't think that's, that's played out yet. So I don't think there's a secular argument yet for believing that the, that the growth engine in FANGs uh, has kind of run out. Now, obviously, there, there are variations in the different businesses there, but but that's the other side. In fact, if anything, we see more interesting new growth trends, secular growth trends emerging than disappearing at the moment. Okay, wonderful. Jeremy, thanks very much for your time. We always appreciate it and always enjoy these Q&As that we do with you. Thank you. Great. Thanks very much. All the best. So thanks very much, everyone, for attending this morning's presentations. I do hope that you found quite a lot of valuable information in there and useful insights that you can take back to your clients. We will show a QR code at the end. If there's something that we've delighted you about, just please let us know. Perhaps even more so, if there's something that we did to make you upset, please definitely let us know so we don't make the same mistake again. We'd also like to thank our best of breed fund managers for coordinating and making this whole event come together. And of course, you know, we'd be absolutely useless without the valuable help of our production team. Thanks for making it all happen. So if you don't already receive our monthly Global Pulse report, there's some of the best insights happening in global markets today. Feel free to go onto our Netgroup Investments International website and you can subscribe from there. You certainly uh, will find it very valuable and it's certainly worth your time. 
please also be sure to follow us on LinkedIn, where you'll be able to have access to videos, more insights, and a whole lot more useful content and information. Also, the recording from today's event, as I mentioned, will be distributed shortly, and you'll have all of those in individual snippets per presentation, which I'm sure you'll find very, very valuable. There's also a lot of a uh, lot more excitement happening here at Net Group Investments during May. We've got the Balanced Perspective webinar coming up with Truffle Asset Management. We've got a bit of a catch-up on local property with Ian Anderson, and of course the next installment of our Responsible Investing Summit, um, which you'll see the invite to coming up soon, and that's going to focus on diversity. Just please feel welcome to get in touch with your relationship manager if you have any more questions on those. Until next time, best wishes to you. Stay safe, keep well. And take care of your families. Negroup Collective Investments is an authorised collective investment scheme manager in terms of the Collective Investment Schemes Control Act. Negroup Investments does not provide advice on financial products and will only give you factual information. For further details on our funds and to view our terms and conditions, please visit negroupinvestments.co.za.